0: It's great to see everybody here, particularly some old parishioners, some old employees, some old friends, so very happy to uh, be with you on this kind of dreary winter night. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit. Amen. Amen. So, tonight we are talking a little bit about Humane Vitae, the document from 1968 written by Pope Paul VI sort of clearly giving the church's teaching on contraception that according to the natural law, the design of God, each and every marital act ought to be open to life, and to do something deliberately to frustrate the meaning of the act is gravely sinful. And so now, this year, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, and so Nick asked me to come uh, and offer a few reflections on this prophetic document on its anniversary. What I'm going to do is something a little different. I kind of gave a reflection similar to this a few weeks ago to my own parents in the parish. So I figured I would develop it into a larger talk. I don't know how long it'll last or how much sense it's going to make, uh, but hopefully we'll have some time for questions and answers after. So if you're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, 50 years out from Humani Vitae, document clearly stating the church's position on this, probably more than any other papal document, at least in recent memory, this one, if we're going to be honest, was a complete failure. An absolute complete failure. When it came out, bishops and priests rejected it. No one paid attention to it priests refuse to talk about it, or actually encourage people to act not in accord with the teaching. It's a complete failure, and to deny that I think would be foolish. Today, they say, even though arguably many of them know the teaching, that 95% of all Catholic couples contracept. There hasn't been a big change. There hasn't been this massive awakening to understand it. Many, of course, as I said, simply don't grasp the teaching, or maybe were never taught. And as a result, I'm sure their culpability is pretty low. In the 70s, when John Paul II became pope, he gave a series that most everybody knows, The Theology of the Body. Are we all familiar with that? The whole purpose of Theology the Body was to take the teaching of Humanae Vitae and to sort of reinterpret it or re-explain it in a way that people could accept and understand. I'm going to get into all of that, but Humanae Vitae really looks at the meaning of the marital act. It's unitive meaning, couple coming together, and the procreative meaning, bringing forth life. John Paul II agreed with that, but he sort of shifted it not into the act, but into the person, and talking about the meaning of the body, that the body has a unitive meaning. This is called the spousal meaning of the body. But it also has a procreative or generative meaning, the ability to bring forth life. And so it's a focus on the person. And its hope was that promoting this theology of the body, seeing the human body in light of divine revelation, and a deeper meaning that it would change things, that people would get it. Without a doubt, theology of the body has become popular and it's taught in most places, and I'm sure it has had an impact. But Catholics are still contracepting. They may know the theology of the body, they may have learned it, but we're not seeing some significant decrease in the practice of contraception. And so, without in my opinion, some direct intervention from God, we're not going to see a change. We've lost the battle. And so what I want to do is not in any way, shape, or form advocating giving up. We still teach the church's teaching. My couples, I married married 17 couples this year. They all have to go through uh, NFP courses, and they have to wrestle with me and talking about and trying to understand the teaching. And mostly the students that I work with are very, very open to this. But what I want to do is look at what the roadblock is. What's been the thing or things over the course of the past 50 years that have basically allowed this teaching to fall on deaf ears? It really hasn't changed minds and changed hearts. Well, certainly, I think there's an intellectual component that people don't understand, that they haven't been taught. because the thing is, if you're going to want to understand the teaching, there's a lot of background stuff you got to know. It's like before you can understand trigonometry, you've got to understand algebra. Most Catholics don't even understand algebra when it comes to morality, when it comes to the meaning of the body, or whatever. But practically. The real reason, even though people may understand it, they may know it, they may have been taught about it, the real reason that people and Catholics contracept, because unlike 100 years ago, it is effective, it is accept- accessible, and it is very, very easy to use. Even though they may know they shouldn't do it, it's such a temptation. It's right there. It's so easy. It's like saying, hey, I don't want to eat donuts anymore. But you live above the donut shop. It's going to be very, very difficult to do because contraception and its ability is all over. Even if in your mind you know you shouldn't do it, the temptation is still there. It's very, very difficult to resist. But even though we can sort of focus on those two things, I want to say, step back and look elsewhere. (coughs) Look elsewhere to see what the real issue is of why, I believe at least, Catholics have a hard time understanding and accepting this teaching. Because ultimately, I, I like to do this, I want to peel back the onion. The problem, people think, okay, well, the problem is they don't understand contraception. Go back a little bit deeper, oh, they don't understand the meaning of the body. No, we're going to have to continue to peel back the onion a lot further, in my opinion, to get to the root of the problem. And if we can do that, then possibly, we might have a change of mindset in the future. And so, to sort of explain where I'm coming from, I'll tell a little story about my shift in understanding the Church's teaching on contraception. So when I entered the seminary in 1994, of course, you know, being young and Orthodox, yes, this is the church's teaching. I accept it. Uh, I love it. But I hadn't really studied it that much. I ended up going to the John Paul II Institute and I studied it until it was coming out of my ears. But before that, when I was doing my undergraduate theology, we had a professor who was teaching us the works of St. Paul. And it was the worst. I mean, I'm ADD enough to sit through a good lecture, but this guy, I mean, he was rambling and incoherent. I, I literally learned zero about St. Paul's letters or anything. And this guy was an Irishman, and what he would do is he'd come to the class, and this is at the Dominican University Angelicum, and he'd just start talking and rambling on, and he'd mention this article or this book or whatever. And so we were really frustrated in the class. This doesn't make any sense. Why am I going to this class? Until one of our classmates said, i got a solution. I love Father's class. I said, tell us the solution. He goes, I want you to imagine that you are at an Irish pub with a big pine in front of you, and you're listening to him just tell stories at the pub. Now, of course, it was 9 o'clock in the morning. It was kind of hard to imagine that I had a beer in front of me. But he did the best. He says, don't worry about following the line of his argument. Just listen, because he has some great stories. And find the different articles and books and go look it up. And so I started doing that, and it made the class bearable. And there were a lot of things that I learned, in fact, came to sort of enjoy the class, even though I had to teach myself St. Paul somewhere else. And I don't remember a lot of the different articles or what he said, but there's one that I do. And it's an article that I actually have a copy of, and I can get to you, Nick. I probably should have gotten to you before. It's a PDF format, so you can share it with everybody. It's an article written in the Jesuit magazine America, and I would not normally suggest you read things (laughs) from this magazine. But in 1981, there was an article published by a Catholic author named Christopher Derrick. I've talked about this before, and some of you may remember it. If you've heard me talk about sexual sexuality, I've talked about this article. And the article was called The Desacralization. That means the un- making unholy. The Desacralization of Venus, the goddess of love. It's probably the only time America's ever published an article that supported the church's teaching on humanity. And Christopher Derrick was a philosopher, theologian, English, who was actually a disciple of C.S. Lewis. How many people have heard of him? He's written a number of books, uh, but they are all out of print. And this article, Father mentioned, and I went and read it, and this article changed the way I looked at everything. It's one of those times when you read something you say, even though he's using some pretty big words and he's rambling a little bit, this is truth. And this cuts to the heart of what the church is teaching is. And for me, help me reinterpret and look at just about everything. What is his argument? His argument is this, and I'm really condensing it. He said that every culture in history except for our Western culture, has seen sex, particularly the sexual act, and fertility, the ability of the body to bring forth life as things that were sacred. They were holy. And as a result, to be treated with certain reverence and respect. And he points out that you can see through different cultures they went to some pretty serious extremes to explain this. Just about every culture, from Egypt to Greece to Rome, has a goddess of love and a goddess of fertility, or a god of fertility, usually a goddess. And even some of the cultures were so extreme, like the ones uh, in the Old Testament, the pagan cultures, they were fertility cults. Where basically, you would have these women who were the temple prostitutes, and the priests or others would go and have sex with them, and this unity sort of reflected the union of the God with the goddess and bringing forth life. Of course, Yahweh didn't much like that. This is not what mass and church should be like. It should be something a little bit different. And so they would destroy these shrines. You know, if you read the Old Testament, the sacred poles, use your imagination. This is what they were. They would worship the generative power. But interestingly enough is that for our culture, what he says, we don't see it as sacred at all. It's purely biological. It's a result purely of evolution. And there's no sacred sense to it. So as a result, our culture doesn't treat it with reverence. Because things that are sacred, there are always rules and regulations following it in every culture. This is a person, a place, or a thing that's sacred. There are certain rules and regulations. And if you don't treat them properly, there is usually a pretty significant punishment. He makes the point that often in a lot of these cultures, the goddess of love is also the goddess of war. Now, there's two faces to this. There is a different side. that if you mess with love and fertility, there's going to be hell to pay. And so when I describe this, uh, I, I like to use, and I think most everybody here is going to understand it, uh, when I give this talk, I, I love to use probably top three favorite movie of all time, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many of you have seen Raiders? OK, look at that. Well, we need more people to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nick, Make sure you show that. Indiana Jones, <laughs> 1981, Steven Spielberg, he goes, he's this archaeologist, and he finds the lost Ark of the Covenant from the Old Testament where they put the, 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 the scriptures, the Ten Commandments in, and the Staff of Aaron, and some of the manna. And so he finds it, but the Nazis come after it, and they steal it, and at the end of the movie they're on this island, and the Nazis, along with Belloc, the French uh, archaeologist, they get dressed up in all this Jewish regalia, priestly regalia. And they're going to have a ceremony, a religious ceremony. While, of course, um, Indy with his girlfriend, Marion, they are tied up because they're prisoners. And they're about ready, when they're about ready to open it and do the ceremony, Indy tells Marion, don't look. Close your eyes. It doesn't matter. How, whatever you hear or you feel, close your eyes. Don't look. Kind of like in the Old Testament. Do not look back at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or you're going to turn into a pillar of salt. And so I remember watching this in the theater in 1981. I think it was the coolest thing ever. They open it up and they look and it's nothing but sand. And they're all disappointed. And the Nazis are scoffing at But All of a sudden, there's lights that start coming from the sand. And these rays of light start squishing around. And they're angels. And it's unbelievable, and everyone's freaking out. And Bella goes, it's beautiful. And then the angel comes, and then all of a sudden, it turns into this skull and this demon. And then everyone freaks out, and their faces melt, and they explode. <laughs> Everything catches on fire. There's an earthquake, whatever. And everyone's annihilated, except for ending and Marion because they didn't look. Now, that's a sort of very theatrical and false way of, of it describing it. This didn't happen. and wouldn't happen. But what does it mean? Here are some individuals, the Nazis, the, the thieves, that are, they were not deputed to use the sacred thing. And they are, for their own selfish purposes, and as a result, there's hell to pay. Now, of course, Derek doesn't talk about this in his book. I mean, his article, The Desacralization of Venus, but it's the same point. And so he says that there is all the pain. He kind of talks about it. The suffering that comes from when we are not given the authority or we are not doing it properly. We handle the sacred. Bad things that happen in the Old Testament. You know, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, what happened to them? They got rats and hemorrhoids. They got struck down. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. The people are eating the Eucharist and not discerning it properly, and they're getting sick. That's what's happening. When we mess with the sacred, there can be repercussions. And so the whole core of this argument, though, is sex is either sacred, sex and fertility are sacred and holy, or they're not. And as Catholics, we believe they are sacred and holy. And as a result, there are rules to follow, and even more, as a result, the church... Because it is the bride of Christ and the institute, the mouthpiece of Jesus on earth, has the right to say what you can and you can't do with it. The church has jurisdiction over the sacred and the holy. And I remember reading this and I said, This is true. I've never heard it expressed this way before, but I believe what he's true, this is true. If indeed sex and fertility are holy, then we've got to treat them in a certain way, not for our own jollies and our selfish purposes. We have to treat it with great reverence. And to not do so can lead to some pretty bad repercussions. And so at least in my mind, what we have seen, and the spread of pornography, and perversion, and the breakdown of the family, and the increase of lust, and the abuse, and whatnot, This all comes as a result of the fact that we as a culture and as Catholics are not treating sex and fertility with the reverence that is due to them. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, every time a couple gets together, they should, you know, have some tabernacle over their bed or to pray or whatever. I'm I'm not advocating that type of extreme. You can even have sort of jocularity in dealing with it. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves. If you want to get to the root of it, he talks about this. Derek develops it in this this article. And then later in a book he has called Sex and Sacredness, he also uh, develops this a little bit more. But understanding the sacredness and the holiness of sex and fertility, and the ways that we ought to have respect or reverence for it changed my understanding. Because if it's not sacred, then you could do whatever you want with it. But if it is and you misuse it, you end up in a situation like we have today. And so what happened is, after I read that, then I went on to study John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And again, how many of you all have studied a little bit of Theology of the Body? I think most young people have. How many of you have actually read the book? Yeah, yeah, You want to? jump off a building and trying to read that book. It's so difficult. But my argument in, in reading, and I wrote on it and I did a lot of studying of it, besides the fact that John Paul II's making a defensive humana vitae by moving, shifting the act to the person, the meanings, the anti-penultimate, the second to last audience, number 131 if you have it, The tie, this is sort of like the end of everything. I mean, he, he's drawing your point to the very, very end. What does he say? It's called the gift of reverence. The whole point, I think, of Theology of the Body is exactly what Christopher Derrick said, exactly what C.S. Lewis said, that we are supposed to take this gift of reverence. Reverence is the attitude you have towards something holy. That is a gift of the Spirit, and it should be applied to the two inseparable meanings of the conjugal act. And he explains this in 131, particularly paragraph 4. I didn't copy it for you, but you can go figure it out in order to to read it for you. This is what is important. The whole point of the theology of the body is if the body can be read in light of God, who is holy, therefore the body is holy, but specifically these two aspects. And we understand that. We understand it. That's why we, I think sexual abuse is such a significant thing. Because when you do that, you ruin someone's life. You punch somebody in the arm, they're, they're going to survive. You pick on them. It may cause some scars. But sexual abuse destroys lives, and partially because there's something so intimate, something so sacred, something so holy, that ultimately it becomes a sacrilege. Now, John Paul II doesn't go to that extreme in saying it, but he does say that the two aspects, the unitive and the procreative meaning of the marital act, we should approach them with reverence. And the only things you approach with reverence are things that are holy, things that are sacred. And so that's basically, I think, the purpose of theology of the body, the purpose of humane vitae, the understanding of the church's teaching. But here's the issue. Going back to what I said, why is it that Catholics and no one seem to accept this? It's not so much a religious problem, but it's the fact that we live in the West, and I would say the developed nations and even probably some of the non-developed nations in a secular age. An age and a culture and a society and a civilization that does not see anything as holy. There is no sacredness. There are no holy sites. Everything is purely secular. Now granted, there's, there's a book called The Secular Age by Charles Taylor. If you think John Paul II rambles on, go try to read that book. But its point is the, the roots to where we are today in this purely secular society, we're not where if religion is accepted, it's relegated to the side, or it is ridiculed, or if you try to practice it, you might even be persecuted for having these religious beliefs inserted into the public sphere. And they the roots run deep in the Enlightenment, and nominalism, and philosophy, and the rise of the scientistic mentality, and the technocracy, all of these things. The air we breathe, even as believers, makes it very, very difficult to believe in God to believe that anything is sacred. I mean, think of it. Even as Catholics, we face this temptation. It used to be, if you were hungry, well, you had to pray to God so that there'd be rain so you get the crop. <coughs> now, if you're hungry, you go to the Piggly Wiggly. It used to be, if you were sick, you prayed for healing. Now, what do you do? You go down to the, the thrifty way and you get some medicine. And these are good things. But we really don't need God. And this is just the world we live in. Most of us pay God lip service, but the fact of the matter is, you can survive. There are plenty of atheists that we know. They're wealthy, they're rich, they're happy. You could say they're not, but there are a lot of people who are, and they don't practice religious faith. And so even for those who are religious, it's difficult to keep God and the sacred in our mindset, that we technically are sort of practical atheists. We don't really need God or depend on him in the way that the conveniences that we have. Granted, when things get bad, we do. But when it comes to the day-to-day stuff, it's just not necessary. And I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's the reality of living in a technical, secular age one that doesn't see sex or fertility as sacred, but one that sees nothing as sacred. It's, pure, it's just pure secular. Now, of course, the irony is they, the culture does see certain things as sacred. If we're going to make the argument that there is a sacred reality, and as a result, we are religious beings, we are going to treat things as holiness. So anyhow, even though... I do not advocate <laughs> pulling for LSU because I go to UL. I was able to go to the LSU-Alabama game. And as I was walking around, I, I talked to my associate, Father Pelsier, He was there. He wanted tickets. And I said, I get him tickets, but I got really good tickets. So I said, I'll give you this ticket if I get to go and then you find me a replacement and you drive. <laughs> That's a good deal. It's a good deal. He's <laughs> walking around the crowd before tailgating. And I said to him, you know, imagine if aliens flew over today the stadium and the tailgating. They would certainly think this is our religious ceremony. Certainly, this must be their God. Look how excited they're getting. Look at 200,000 people probably inside and outside of the stadium. It must be their God. And so again, I love sports. I'm not against sports. But it's true. That the sports stadium, this is the new temple. This is where we go to worship. People cannot spend one hour in mass watching activity that happens at the altar, but they can spend three hours watching as observers activity going down there that they get no benefit from. That's why I, don't, I mean I love the Saints. I don't care if the Saints win or not. Drew Brees doesn't give me any money when they win. The only sport I care about is my fantasy football team, because I win or I lose. (laughs) I do a lot of losing lately. But which is even funnier when you think about it, the word fan. I'm a fan of this team. That's what we always say. Well, fan, of course, is the shortened version of fanatic. But you know where the word fan comes from? From the Latin word fanum, which means temple. A fan or a fanatic is one who is at the temple, who worships at the fanum. But it's even more ironic, if you're a fan of the saints or LSU or UL, that's a great thing. That's your temple. But if you're a religious fanatic, that's a bad thing. Well, basically, to say someone's a fan is saying they're a fanatic. You're a sports fanatic. That's your temple. That's what you worship as. And so I'm sure I give all kinds of different other things, but the reality is we are going to see certain things as sacred, and particularly sexuality. Go, go. I'm not advocating you go look at this up, but like all of this, people do. They, they, they see this mystical in sex, and the tantric stuff, and all this weird eroticism. You can't escape it. It's perverted. It's not what it's supposed to be, but at least they can't escape the fact that they, as we as humans, have to be individuals who see things as sacred. Am I making sense so far? All right. Well, here's, here we're going to get to the point. Sex and fertility are sacred. But if we do not have this mindset where we believe the sacred exists, or we're able to see the sacred... If we don't have this worldview, even as Christians or Catholics, guess what? We're not going to see sex and fertility as sacred. In order to be able to do that, to truly understand the church's teaching, we have to have that a priori previous mindset that we believe sacred things exist, and particularly we think this is sacred. So it's not just about the specific issue, but it's about a mindset of trying to perceive things that are holy, to see God acting in the world, to see him in ourselves and others, to see him in the Eucharist, to perceive sacred realities. So how does one adopt this mindset? Where do we get it from? Where do we get sort of like, you know, John Connolly's rose-colored glasses. This is talking Jesus' sacred color glasses, that you're able to perceive the sacred in reality, that you see holiness around you. Where do we get it? There's only one place, through prayer, through prayer. That's the only way we're going to see anything as sacred or holy we are not praying and having a spiritual life, there's no way you're going to be able to have that sacred mindset or worldview, to view things through a spiritual lens. And so that's why John Paul II actually ends the of the body on what? The need for a conjugal spirituality. If you don't have that conjugal spirituality, if the couple doesn't pray together, if they don't have that spiritual outlook you're not going to be able to live or understand this teaching we've got to see the body and everything through the spiritual lens that is put on our eyes through prayer and a real spirituality if you want to tie it back to theology of the body it's the original innocence he talks about adam and eve and the story of genesis whenever they before they ate of the tree they saw their bodies and They saw they were good. Why? Because they could see their bodies as God saw them. They had those lenses on. They could see the sacred. But once they sinned, all of a sudden, that original innocence was lost. It was distorted. They couldn't see their bodies themselves as God saw them. And so it takes that that having that vision of grace. It takes having a spiritual worldview to be able to see and understand it. But you can't do it if you don't pray. If you don't pray, you can't do it. But the reality is, how many Catholics actually pray? Very few. We may say prayers, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's good. But how many really pray from here? that have time set aside every single day for a silent encounter with the Lord. Most Catholics, it's an obligation to go to Mass for an hour, you get it out of the way, and then you go to the real fanum, the real temple, is a Superdome, or Tiger Stadium, and all the time and energy people spend on this ritual. For us, no. Because the thing is, real prayer is something you want to do. Where you go and allow the Lord to transform you. But it takes discipline. It takes focus. But that takes a desire. Most Catholics don't want that. They don't have it. And I'm not trying to blame them or pointing a finger. But it's true. Individuals don't. Families don't. Couples don't. How many families do these really pray? Now I know y'all are here on a Monday night to listen to this priest talk about contraception so most probably y'all do and I'm speaking to the choir but the reality is most don't don't have that deep prayer life that mystical prayer life that we're all called to have not just the saints we all are to have contemplation even in the world is it easy no it's not is it fun not always but we're still called to it communion with the lord and what happens is, when we are praying, whether we realize it or not, the Lord is working on us. He's transforming our minds, our hearts, our eyes to be able to have that spiritual worldview. Again, most of you in here will be able to understand this. This it's metaphor. Remember when, in, in like before digital technology and CDs and streaming radio. You had that radio and you had the dial. And it was that big orange thing that kind of went back and forth, the AM and the FM. And boy, you had to spend like five minutes to get to 97.3 so you could listen to your your George Jones. And it was tuned in. You had to tune in that radio. But then you'd be driving and all the potholes on the back road, it would kind of go off to the side. And you start getting fuzz and you got to turn it back again. We all know what that's like. So what happens is when we are in the zone, when we are having that spiritual mindset that enables us to see all of creation, particularly sex and sexuality as sacred, we're tuned in. But what happens is, is during the daily life, oop, we, we lose that tuning in. We're not catching the signal. Where are we tuned in? In prayer. In masses of prayer, but as an individual prayer. We're not doing the tuning, but we're the radio. The Lord is tuning us. Prayer is not about what you do. It's about being with the Lord and what He does to you. You've got to understand that, but that's a whole separate topic. The Lord's tuning us. And the more we enter into that, the more we can have that mystical outlook. And so, this is why, even in Humani Vitae, paragraph 29, Pope Paul VI talks about the need be trained in prayer, to pray, to learn, to have that spirituality, so this stuff can make sense. It's, again, as I said before, the whole heart and the purpose of the end of theology the body. But so few really know how to pray. And a lot of the times, it's not their fault. It's because they haven't been taught to pray. And it's very easy for me to say, hey, good of some math problems, good of some calculus. Okay, I kind of know how to add things, but I need someone to teach me. And this is why it's so important. And I, as a priest, realize I'm not the best at it, but I try to teach people how to pray, or at least I teach them that it's important for them to learn how to pray. But that's what needs to happen. We need to learn how to pray, what prayer really is, and to set aside the time and the effort to pray so the Lord can receive us and begin to transform us in our mentality. And so, 50 years later, from Humani Vitae, I can sit here and talk about the prophecies and the natural law and theology of the body, and I can go on and on and on. But if we don't have the next layer of the onion, that understanding and the belief in the sacred, and the other layer of the prayer that enables us to see it, then it's not going to matter. I'm talking about something way down the line without talking about the real root of the problem, the real root of the issue. If we are going to shift mindset and help people to understand the Church's teaching on humana Vitae, if we want to celebrate it for a hundred years from now where people actually remember the document, the real work that we need to start now is learning to pray, teaching our children to pray, teaching other people to pray, so the Lord can work in them to give them that sacred world view, And wow, things are gonna become changing. Our hearts will change. And we're gonna say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I think it's really the Eucharist. I see the holiness in there. I see the holiness in the rosary. I see the holiness in sex and sexuality. We're gonna be able to perceive these things. But a person who doesn't pray Can't do it. And so that's my call, or at least my opinion, if we, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary, I do believe it's a very, very important teaching, and the fact that people have disregarded it, there have been some very negative repercussions. And so if we're going to change things, it's not about, hey, let's get everybody to understand the natural law. Ain't nobody going to understand the natural law. This This is how it works but people can learn to pray and we need to be able to teach it uh the joys and and the need of having that deeper prayer life of having true contemplation not just saying prayers so the lord can receive us and change our worldview amen amen Amen.